the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, good afternoon to you. Welcome. It's a Thursday, the 30th of January. Can you believe we've almost blown through the first month of the new year? Absolutely amazing. And to think I just got the Christmas tree down last weekend. <laughs> Almost. I don't exaggerate by much. Hey, we've got a pretty jam-packed program for you tonight. A little bit later on in the show, we'll be honored to be joined on the program by best-selling author, attorney, and nationally syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek. He'll drop by, spend some time talking about some of the big issues of the day. We want to get into Bob's thought on the handling of both United States health authorities as well as those in China concerning the coronavirus, the latest count of which is more than 6,000 people that have been diagnosed with it and 130-something that have sadly succumbed to the disease. Of course, just yesterday, an airplane flew from China by way of Alaska to uh, Air Force Base in Southern California, and there are about 200 Americans that are currently in quarantine there. But is the WHO... Are health authorities in the United States vis-a-vis the CDC really doing enough when they say that this is a virus that is changing rapidly, unpredictable, and yet there's nothing to worry about? You have to wonder about the choice of words and whether or not that's simply an attempt to try to not create uh, too much concern or panic amongst folks. But meanwhile, shouldn't we be doing something in a proactive fashion more so perhaps than what we are. Don't know, but we're going to talk about that. We'll also talk about the dangerous situation that the Democrats may be setting up for themselves heading into the primary. Bernie Sanders once again taking the lead heading into Iowa, and of course the Democrat Party completely beside itself. Now, of course, this time four years ago, they were able to use the power of Hillary Clinton to squash the uh, the desire of or the the ability of Bernie Sanders to uh, get any headway in the primary could that be different this time and could Democrats be setting themselves up for a sure win uh, not for the Democrats but for the Republicans we'll talk about that coming up a little bit later on as Bob Zadek joins us on the program right now though here's word out of Washington D.C. lawsuit is being filed against our state. The Department of Health and Human Services is saying the California state will have to answer for a violation of federal law, issuing a notice to the state formally notifying Sacramento that it cannot impose universal abortion coverage mandates on health insurance plans and insurers in violation of federal law. With more on the story, we're joined by Allison Centofante, 
Allison is Director of External Affairs for Live Action. Allison, thank you for being with us today. We know certainly that California has long had a very hostile attitude at the state government level towards um, people that support life. And this most recent uh, imposition, going back to uh, regulation, I believe, that first went into law in uh, 2014, that insists that insurers and employers across the state of California provide abortion services to um, the employees that they cover through their company or organization's health plans and therefore cause all of us to essentially pay for abortions or people who have plans that will pay for abortions, even if it runs against one's sense of religious belief or choice, um, is, you know, I, I suppose no surprise for the state of California, but it sounds like the Department of Health and Human Services is not going to have any of this nonsense. <laughs> Yes. Well, thanks so much for having me, and thanks for covering this really important story. I mean, it has taken six years to put California on notice for forcing abortion coverage on people like nuns and churches. Uh, Back in August 2014, California mandated all employers, including churches and nuns, who provide health insurance to cover abortion. And, you know, our country is founded on the idea that if you have a, you know, religious liberty... uh, you have a conscientious objection that you wouldn't be forced to pay for the taking of human life. And that's what these nuns, these churches have said, I can't do that, particularly thinking about accepting donations from congregants and knowing that 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 money would go towards the ending of human life. And so they fought this, and uh, this was put in place by the Obama administration's HHS, and and they just kind of gave it lip service, like, we're looking into it. We're looking into it, and uh, now, finally, thanks to this administration, we have Roger Severino at the helm of the Office for Civil Rights. They are protecting conscious and religious liberty, and just recently, this week, they said to California, you have 30 days to prove to us that you are going to stop violating what's called the Weldon Amendment. And the Weldon Amendment is a federal law, long-standing, it says you don't have, you cannot force people to participate, fund in abor- fund an abortion. Uh, so California has been in violation of that, and finally, our members, our leadership in Washington D.C. is doing the right thing, saying, "Fix it, or else you'll lose funding." Uh, so we're tracking this story here at Live Action. We actually have an office in Los Angeles. Um, our main headquarters is in Los Angeles, so we know just how hard it is to be pro-life in California, but. The reality is there are so many pro-life people in California, and this has been one of their their biggest calls, is they just want to make sure that their money, they are not in any way participating in this grave human rights abuse. So we're really applauding this decision by HHS and Roger Severino and his team, because no one should be coerced or forced into participating in these activities that violate their conscience um, and, and threaten human life. And there are two um, two examples here. Uh, of uh, organizations that have already been under pressure uh, to comply with this law, uh, a um, order of Catholic religious sisters here in California, and Skyline Wesleyan Church, a uh, church uh, down in Southern California, uh, both of whom said, hey, wait a minute, why are you asking for us to pay for this and provide essentially abortion services through our health plan to our employees when this runs contrary to our, our, our conscience? Yeah, absolutely. And 
according to Roger Severino at the Office of Civil Rights, there were 28,000 Californians who had abortion-free plans prior to the state stepping in and saying, you lose that option, your plan has to cover abortion. And so that's powerful. Uh, California should stop forcing people of goodwill to subsidize in the taking of human life. I mean, you're pointing out these sweet nuns, the church, they're doing the right thing and fighting back against this, and they're really just looking for respect for their right of conscience and respect for their convictions. Uh, it's sad that we have to ask for an exemption from this grave abuse. We shouldn't be participating in it at all, but this is one way that we can say, look, I have a right to ensure that my coverage is not going towards that procedure. Um, so, again, I think it's important to just know that politics matter. This is what that proves. Politics matters. And also that there are people in place that want to uh, force abortion on folks, force taxpayer funding of abortion, force um, people of faith and even just moral conviction to take part in it. And so um, we're really proud that Roger, his team, the HHS administration has done the right thing, and they're threatening to cut funding to, the, you know, the nation's most populous state if it continues to force people to uh, per, pay for abortions in their, their health care coverage. Well, this is certainly good news, and I understand that uh, this is essentially putting California on notice. How long does the state have to respond and to essentially come under compliance uh, before the feds have to get serious? So the state of California has 30 days. They have 30 days to report back, um, and then HHS will review if if they're in compliance. Um, they've given them 30 days to comply with the Weldon Amendment, um, very clearly laying out that, look, you are not allowed to discriminate against anyone on the basis that they are not willing to pay for or provide coverage of abortion. Um, and they're not playing around here. I mean, I was just reading an article uh, from Governor Newsom in California who said, look, you know, he's very defiant on Friday after the administration makes his announcement. Um, he says, you know, they're doubling down. He says, full stop. You know, we will protect abortion. And it's great because um, an administration official says, uh, or maybe it might have been Kevin McCarthy, in fact, who said, that's fine. You need to just fall in line with the federal law. Um, it's really not about your feelings. <laughs> it's not about what you say. It's about what you do, and you're out of line. So um, I'm proud of the bravery and finally stepping up and pushing back here. California leadership doesn't seem in any way to think that they'll comply. But again, uh, this is a federal. It's a federal funding issue. So they're willing to lose federal funds um, to double down on forcing people to provide abortion coverage, which is wild. Well, this is good news. Uh, sorry that it uh, took us uh, this number of years to to get here, but uh, glad to hear that, uh, in fact, the administration is drawing a proverbial line in the sand on this. It will be fascinating to see what kind of response comes out of Sacramento, um, given the historical position of the California State Legislature in recent years. Uh, I'm not going to hold my breath but stranger things have happened. Alison Centofante, Director of External Affairs for Live Action. More information available on the web at liveaction.org. That's liveaction.org. Coming up next, could Bernie Sanders become the candidate? 
running against Donald Trump in the general election this November? And what about Elizabeth Warren's plan to just cancel student debt across the country? Nice idea till you realize the number one holder of student debt and the number one beneficiary financially of student debt is the United States government. See how quickly they're willing to turn over that cash. All that and more, plus the ongoing threat to California health and the world of the Wuhan coronavirus. Just how well has the CDC responded? Syndicated talk show host Bob Zadak with some answers coming up around the corner. Help you get around that corner. Let's get a look at traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. We continue on the Thursday edition and always a delight to have joined us on the program best-selling author, lawyer, and syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show, heard Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. all up and down the West Coast and locally here in the San Francisco Bay region on 860 a.m. KTRB, The Answer, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock. And Bob, as always, great to have you with us. Thank you for inviting me, Craig. It's a pleasure to be back. One of those slow news days, hard to ch- <laughs> hard to decide what not to talk about. Uh, let me get your your quick thoughts, sort of top of mind on on a couple of things here, and then I want to dive into some of the nitty gritty. But first, uh, realizing neither one of us are doctors, but as we have watched things unfold, with not only how the World Health Organization has responded to the coronavirus, but even the CDC, I, I find it a little bit disingenuous that they talk about this thing uh, changing and morphine, and we really don't know what the future is going to look like. It can change every minute, but oh, by the way, we have nothing to worry about. But over 6,000 people so far have been infected with over 130 who have lost their lives to the coronavirus. We know that they brought back an airplane of more than 200 Americans from Wuhan that is now in Southern California, and they're at an Air Force base, I think March Air Force Base, where they're in quarantine for a while. I hesitate to make comparisons to this to the 1918 flu pandemic because that was certainly one of the worst health events globally in recent history. But I have to wonder whether or not, from your perspective, has the CDC moved fast enough? Has the WHO moved fast enough to at least give people a sense of what we're potentially up against here? And I guess you're asking me that question because somebody told you it was Dr. Bob Zadig. That's that what it? I heard. <laughs> <laughs> well, Craig, um, unless you want me arrested for practicing medicine without a license, that's another show. But to answer your question, I'll give you the libertarian reaction to a virus. Um, and this you're not going to hear anywhere else. When I learn about the virus, here's what I say to myself. First of all, I say to myself, to my friends, and to my greater friends, your audience, watch how the government uses yet another scary event to accumulate powers, never to seed them back once the scare has lifted. Just watch it, like quarantine, Um, in effect, putting everybody into jail cells of various sizes. Now, I'm not saying quarantine might not be necessary. I don't know the answer to that. I do know that for sure there will be a, a, a national emergency. That's for sure. There will be for sure 
emergency powers, that's for sure, and they're not going to go away, because no one's ever going to say the emergency has ended, let's go back to normal. That I know for sure. Now, specifically, is the National Institute for Health doing enough? I don't even know what enough means in, in this context, but here's what I, here's what another lesson I get from the virus. Word has come out from China that they have run out of those surgical face masks. They haven't got enough. They have run out of various medicines. And I say to myself, I wonder if this shortage is yet another indictment of a top-down managed economy where somebody sitting in Beijing made a decision five years ago what the ideal number of face masks to have around is is the right number and they manufactured that number as opposed to a market economy where people make money by selling face masks. I just wonder. I don't make a statement. I say, this is what I do with crises such as this. And then I say, um, in China, they have, in effect, built what amounts to a wall around the city with many millions of people in it, sort of the mother of all quarantines, and therefore denying everybody, millions of people, their right to travel. Now, that may or may not be the proper solution in China. I do know that a solution such as that would not be tolerated in a country that has places a higher value on freedom and the right to travel. So there are so many, believe it or not, political lessons in what is truly a medical emergency in the first instance. Um, I also wonder whether or not that the, the fact that it's going to take a month or three months, the estimates vary, to find a suitable vaccine, whether that would be different if there wasn't pressure on drug companies to lower what they charge for proven drugs and use the profits, which they do, to manufacture uh, drugs that we needed in the future. I don't know the answer, but this, this, Craig, is an insight into how my brain, which, which is very sensitive to encroachments upon freedom and free markets, what my brain does with a crisis such as this. And, and certainly, you know, I, I have to concur with you. Most frighteningly, we have seen not only other governments, but even sadly in recent times, our own government vis-a-vis the events of 2001 use a short-term crisis to enact laws that are, at least in the moment, in the the midst of the height of the crisis, designed to try to uh, mitigate it, getting out of control, provide a sense of safety and security for Americans. If you're talking about acts of either terrorism or even maybe a health emergency such as the coronavirus, and then suddenly, while in that moment there is a sense of support, everybody says, yes, we need to empower the government, they need to have full authority to deal with this, because they are going to be the gatekeepers. They are going to be the ones that will care for us and look out after us. And then once that crisis has been resolved or the emergency moment is sort of waned into nothingness, before you know it, the measures that we put in place, the draconian measures that we at a moment's notice embraced with great gusto suddenly become 
the way of the land, and before you know it, something like the Patriot Act is hanging around for decades, and nobody talks about uh, FISA courts anymore or whether or not it's necessary to have a judge uh, pass a yay or nay on wiretaps and uh, the ability of the government to spy on you, et cetera, et cetera. And before you know it, we've, we've, uh, we've seen the ability of the government to use an emergency, to use a crisis, to sap more power, more liberty from Americans. And it's, uh, I guess, in a sense, it's sort of the, the proverbial frog in the kettle effect, isn't it? It is. And I guess it's kind of, I will confess, but I am so sensitive to the, the ratchet, the ratcheting away of freedom that every event, every attention-getting event that makes the headlines seems to result in I wake up in the morning with less freedom than I had the day before, and it never works the other way. Never have I woken up and felt more free than I did yesterday. Not in my lifetime. I have felt less free, and this to me, so everything, everything, I look through that filter because I feel so vulnerable at that, at that loss. Bob, I want to turn a corner to a topic that really gets into sort of the, the sweet spot of your wheelhouse from a constitutional standpoint. And um, for folks that maybe are listening to us for the first time and not familiar with your program, Bob Zadek probably has one of the best radio programs anywhere in the country today that deals with issues not only of freedom and liberty, but also um, a, a profound ability to understand and to explain the Constitution of the United States, not, not only in terms of how we um, today typically interpret it, but most importantly, a deep, profound understanding of, no doubt, in many respects, the, the original historical intent of the Founding Fathers who crafted this this wonderful document. So with that said, um, your thoughts so far on the impeachment process? I have to tell you, I was I was a bit taken aback. Um, you know, this this has been sort of an exercise in futility uh, at a lot of levels. But I was a bit taken aback yesterday when Alan Dershowitz suggested that um, a public official who believes that his election or her election is in the public interest can essentially do nothing wrong if they are engaging in activity or behavior toward that end, toward becoming elected or reelected. And I thought, gee, I don't know a single public official who wouldn't agree that his or her election is in the quote-unquote public interest. Is that a little extra constitutional there to what, what Mr. Dershowitz seemed to be reading into uh, the proceedings yesterday, in your opinion? Um, I was, um, it's interesting you say that. Um, I am, of course, a practicing attorney. I do not have the CV of Professor Emeritus Dershowitz, but when I, the parts of his, not testimony, but his argument in the well of the Senate, he was just wrong on the merits. And um, both ways, he was wrong in some of his pro-Trump and some of his um, statements that may be interpreted as anti-Trump or, or anti-that behavior. He was just wrong in a way that really surprised me and kind of disappointed me. But as to your specific point, um, I, I, I wish, I hope, that your audience, which is, I'm sure, infinitely more informed than a cross-section of the American public, I hope that your audience will use 
the impeachment experience, I'll call it that, as a as an incredibly value valuable citizenship lesson. There is so much I have learned about the Constitution, about impeachment, about the relationship between uh, the various branches of government, the legislative, the judicial, and the executive branch. It is a master's level course in government available just by reading media and intelligently written blogs. So, and there's so much to unbundle. But as to the issue of the president doing something wrong, furthering his own reelection, I dare say that every president wants to be, every elected official, elected. If you're elected official, you certainly want to be reelected unless you announce your retirement. So everything you do, unless you are somehow self-destructive, everything you do will be measured by the prism of will this further my reelection or not. What public official in their right mind would, in general, take a position that reduces the likelihood of reelection? They might sometimes out of heroism, but it's not the norm. It's the exception. So when every president who conducts foreign policy, he does so in a way to get himself reelected. Now, what does that mean? That sounds like it's bad. But when, when I say he does something, or she, to get themselves reelected, it means they try to figure out what the public would like, what the public wants. That's what getting reelected means. And if you are doing what the public wants, isn't that why you are there? So don't you want everybody to do exactly what they do to get themselves reelected, since that means do what most people would like? That's good, not bad, but it's somehow in this bizarre world we live in, doing something that you think most people will reward you for, that is, will like, is a bad thing. No, it's a good thing. Now, as to a president being able to do whatever they want, that's a total distraction. No one can believe that Trump said, even if it gets me not reelected, I'm going to investigate Biden. Nobody would do that. They might do nothing, but they wouldn't do it. There's other ways to spend the day in the public good rather than harming your reelection. So Trump, and if Trump believed, which apparently he did, whether the belief is well-founded, that the Bidens were corrupt, whatever that means. But if he believed it, even if he was stupid to believe it, if he sincerely believed it, and he said to himself, well, I have a duty as president to investigate this public official who may be corrupt vis-a-vis uh, -vis a foreign government. And he says to himself, you know, this is fabulous. I'm going to investigate Biden, which I have a duty to do as president, and whoopee, I'm going to get rid of a competitor. So he has dual motives. And let's say the motives are 50-50. Does that mean investigating Biden is bad? If so... Is the president, by not investigating Biden, is he doing something good? Of course not. He's got to investigate corruption. So the, the fact that Trump may or may not 
have been benefited or thinks he was being benefited is a red herring. Because what he did, assuming there was some evidence or some reason to believe that the Bidens were corrupt, he did nothing wrong. Obama, in that famous hot mic segment, said to the uh, Russian foreign minister with a hot mic, tell Putin, I can't help him now. I'll have a lot more latitude when I get reelected. When I get reelected, yeah, I remember that remark. Now, but that was, it, that made the news for like one day, and then it was off. And therefore, but that was the same thing. He made, on the spot, a hot mic calculation. What was good for his election? Postpone something. That's the way it is. So American public and pundits get used to it and stop feigning surprise when politicians behave in their self-interest. It's like the last scene in, it's like, not the last scene, Casablanca. Rick, I am shocked, shocked that there is gambling in the Club Americana. <laughs> yeah. That's the hypocrisy of it all. Yeah, that's the the infamous scene. Shocked, shocked to find out there's gambling going on. We're shutting the establishment down. Here you're winning, sir. We'll take a time out on that note. If you've just joined us, some constitutional insights today from Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show, heard Sunday mornings here in Northern California on 860 AM, The Answer, Sundays at 8 o'clock. And you can get more information about Bob, many resources as well as information about his most recent book and podcast by going to bobzadek.com that's b-o-b-z-a-d-e-k.com when we come back let's deal with another technical constitutional aspect that's uh, close to bob's heart and that is um, get into the topic of secession what exactly would that look like? There's been some rumblings going on. Oh, not just here in California, as we've heard in the past. This time around seems to be boiling below the surface in all places. Virginia. We'll find out why and what it means as our conversation with best-selling author and talk show host Bob Zadek continues here on Lifeline. All right, let's get you caught up on some traffic right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation, best-selling author and syndicated talk show host, attorney Bob Zadek with us today, host of the Bob Zadek Show. You can catch his insights and uh, engaging conversations with guests every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here in the San Francisco Bay Area on our sister station, 860 a.m. KTRB, The Answer. Robert, uh, Americans perhaps know of secession in the context of what was going on in our country in the um, the mid-1800s. Uh, by 1861, I think about a dozen states in the South had seceded from the Union. We've talked here in California about portions of the state seceding from others. Um, now, most recently, there's been a little bit of hubbub back in Virginia about the very thing, but even the notice of a portion portion of the state leaving Virginia and wanting to connect itself or join itself with West Virginia, a lot of this surrounding the matter of Second Amendment rights. Give us more perspective on this. What's going on? I have to quickly say to your audience, 
don't touch that dial. People's eyes are rolling, and they're saying, secession, what am I listening to? <laughs> Let me go find something a little more sane. Well, before you touch that dial, give me a chance to explain myself uh, and explain the concept. First of all, we start, as I always like to start, with the principle of free will. Nobody should be forced to live under a government they don't support and they can't get behind. Core principle. Now, the easy way is for people to leave. We call it voting with your feet. People don't like California's high taxes. They move to Nevada. They move to Austin, Texas. They move to New Mexico and they feel, Boise, Idaho, and they feel better. People uh, move from New York to Florida. So people vote with their feet, and that is an appropriate way to vote in a meaningful way that will radically change your life. But there are other variations on that theme of becoming subject to a government you're more supportive of. And one of them is, um, and it comes, what I'm about to say comes about because, in my opinion, the misunderstanding, the dislike of the, what I'll call the elites, because we all know what I'm talking about, uh, the smugness of the red states on our two east and west borders, and the misunderstanding, the deplorables in Hillary's words, and how they um, they like their guns and their Bibles in Obama's words. Um, there is just a dislike and a disapproval of a different culture. In fact, the Civil War in uh, a somewhat not so much appreciated fact of the Civil War the Civil War was, of course, fought over slavery. No, obviously. However, during the time preceding the Civil War, besides slavery being a source of overwhelming disagreement between the North and the South, there was a genuine dislike culturally. The Northeast thought people in the South were agrarian, were morons, unsophisticated, selfish, all this nasty personal stuff. And people in the South felt that they were in danger, forget about slavery for the minute, of losing their lifestyle, the lifestyle they liked. A lot of, which had a lot of positive things besides uh, the horrible institution of slavery. So the country was socially split. They didn't understand each other, and they didn't like each other very much. And that social disagreement was an important cause of the Civil War. They just didn't like each other very much. And they consider themselves to be two separate countries. And that's kind of happening today, only in a very public way, because you see it so much in the media. So we start with the question of, is secession sort of not even suitable for discussion? Well, no. And, and in, as an example of how it's a rational conversation to have, I re uh, there are two trips that I had uh, that... Help me understand, put this in context. I remember many years ago, I had to go to a meeting, and the meeting was held in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I was living in New York at the time, and I went to my first visit 
to Amish country. And we all know what Amish country is. It's that swath of land in western Pennsylvania and in, in Ohio and that part of the country where the Amish live the way they've always lived with, with uh, horse-drawn carriages, not using tools, and their own lifestyle. They live totally differently than the rest of the country. But they're part, they're part of the country, but only geographically. They have nothing to do with the United States. And I then, so that struck me, and it kind of works. They don't mind uh, being physically in the United States so long as they are left alone and they are not subjected to all the parts of American society that they don't, not comfortable. Second trip I took, I just came back from a trip to Costa Rica, a very interesting smallish country in Central, Central America, which has no army, and they are surrounded by dysfunctional uh, other nations in Central America, very similar, same, same topography, same landscape, same weather, but they have a very different life, and they have no army, and they just live their way. So it is possible to create a government that in some ways is connected to other governments, but in many ways, in important ways, is very separate. So one can imagine, let's say, California becoming a separate country, or New York, if they chose to do so, not having its own army, the way Costa Rica doesn't have an army, uh, being, having, being protected by the United States by treaty, the way NATO, the United States protects other countries through NATO, countries that really couldn't protect themselves from China, Russia, or North Korea, but the U.S. protects them. Well, California could join NATO. Uh, I'm being a little bit silly, but not a lot silly. So one, and the advantage of even talking about it is the reason the country is, in my opinion, so unpleasantly divisive is because if you are a conservative, if the progressives get into power in D.C., 3,000 miles away from us, they can impose their social standards on us conservatives. If, on the other hand, conservatives are in power in Washington, we make the progressives in New York and California feel pretty Queasy, because we are imposing our standards and our social and economic standards upon them, and they feel pretty crummy. Whereas if we had separate countries, or at least stronger federalism, it's just a matter of degree, so that the lifestyle, the economic life, taxation, social policies uh, are decided locally, the, the tension, the disagreement goes away, just the way the Amish don't care how people live in Manhattan. We can have that to the whole country, where people in California don't care about how people live in Oklahoma and the like. So as a, as a discussion point, it is an enormous cure for the divisiveness that we have now without, if you do it right, because there are all kinds of variations, a lot of disruption. It's not that dramatic. It's really just federalism 
in the extreme scale. From the constitutional standpoint, and I know that we've kind of wrestled through this on occasions, there was talk about the creation of a state north of California called Jefferson. Um, Recently, there have been proposals, I think, on the ballot about two years ago, looking at carving California into, I think, three separate uh, entities. From a constitutional standpoint, what exactly is involved? Uh, Should a a portion of a state or an entire state say, you know what, guys, we're just, we're not hanging with you anymore. We don't like the way you do things. You intrude too much on our freedoms and liberties. So we wish to either leave the state or even decide, uh, you know, we want to leave the union. How difficult is that from a constitutional viewpoint? That's it. They're on, um, they have, there was a case, Craig, it's interesting you ask that, that went up to the Supreme Court. It was a case decided right after the Civil War, when Texas um, was, was, going to, was trying to secede before the Civil War. The Civil War happened, it never happened, but litigation started, and the case is called, I think, White versus the United States. I invite our listeners, when, they, when the show is over, uh, not before the show, because they were miss something fabulous. But after your show is over, and they then have nothing else to do, let them check out White versus the United States, which is actually a Supreme Court case that held on interesting grounds and very technical grounds that secession was unconstitutional. That was in 1867, I believe. The only case where a court had to decide on the legality of secession um, it's a very hard question. The Constitution says nothing about it. Some uh, students of the Constitution say is that the Constitution is a compact among states, and states are irrevocably bound to it, and states cannot secede. I happen not to buy into that. Um, the Constitution starts with, we the people, not we the states. Therefore, it is the people who formed the government, and therefore, if people don't want to live under the federal system, at least not entirely, they ought to be able to change that. So it's just not clear. It is a wonderful, and with intelligent people, it is a wonderful mind game, and every time that I talk about it, I find myself, my voice gets louder, I get more and more excited, and I don't see it as anything negative. The states think of Europe, which is going the opposite, which were separate states, countries, which formed the European Union, and now a lot of people in Europe witness Brexit are unhappy with it. So just because this has served us for 230 years and we now have 50 states doesn't mean it's the best. And all I invite people to do is when you're sitting around with other folks who are thoughtful, have a conversation because there are tons of variations. Federalism, letting power devolve back to the states from Washington is another example. It's sort of seceding sort of from a political standpoint. You're still connected in many ways, but most of the laws that affect your life are passed locally, not nationally. And that, you will find, is freeing. Now you have much more control over the legal structure you live in because government is closer to you than Washington. So the subject of secession is a subset of a discussion of federalism, local control, and 
the most local control is everybody is their own master. That's as local as it gets, one person. So if that's the ideal, then moving towards that is a step in the right direction. And certainly the notion of a government being from the people or the ground up as opposed from the top down, which has been fundamental to this nation. And, you know, we've we've always lauded the notion of states' rights being even superior to uh, the power and control of the federal government. So if a state decides, you know what, we're, we're not pleased with the portion of how uh, our, our fellow Virginians or Californians are, are deciding and voting and living, and, and uh, we want to be able to, uh, to split off, or um, even if a state said, you know what, we love the other 49, but it's time for us to part ways, even as you suggest, we're seeing this going on right now, uh, tomorrow will be the final day that Britain is a part of the European Union. What that means for the future, who knows? They don't have that much history together as we do here in the U.S., so uh, time will certainly tell. Robert, can you stay with us for a minute more? I want to get a quick uh, time out here and get an update on some traffic, but I, I wanted to uh, to have you comment a bit on uh, Elizabeth Warren and some of her more recent proposals, particularly in relationship to uh, education. Can you stay with us for a moment? I can say as long as you'll have me, Greg. All right. Love it. I appreciate that. Bob Zadek with us today, syndicated talk show host. His program, The Bob Zadek Show, every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock here in the San Francisco Bay Area. You can catch it on 860 AM KTRB, our sister station. He is, as I say, nationally syndicated. So wherever you might be, the show is available, of course, on the Internet and through outlets all up and down the West Coast. Information on the web, bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. A timeout. We'll come back, talk a bit about Elizabeth Warren's proposal to just say student debt. Yeah, wipe it out. Yeah, really? That and more as Lifeline continues. Get a look at traffic for you here from the KFAX Traffic Center, the very latest. 